From ABC News, this is Perspective. I'm Derek Dennis. Coming up, a major heartfelt admission from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on this prostate cancer diagnosis that was kept ultra-private for days. We did not handle this right, and I did not handle this right. Speaking for the first time publicly, Austin taking full responsibility. Meta's Mark Zuckerberg and other social media executives get a grilling on Capitol Hill over the harm their platforms are accused of doing to teens. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? Congressman Josh Hawley getting that apology, what Zuckerberg said to parents and others who were in the room. And remembering Cheetah Rivera. Hard work, relentless work, and you have to be ready. The acclaimed actress passing away at the age of 91. What her fans and co-stars are saying about the trailblazing Latina who lit up Broadway for decades. All ahead on Perspective. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking out for the first time since his prostate cancer diagnosis and recent hospitalization that was kept so quiet, even President Biden didn't know about it for days. Secretary Austin taking full responsibility for his secrecy. So you can count on me to set a better example on this issue today and for the rest of my life. At the start of the year, Austin was rushed into intensive care, close staffers shielding his condition. One even asked that an ambulance turn off its sirens before arriving to his home. The latest now from ABC's Terry Moran. Facing sharp scrutiny, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin admitted that he was wrong to keep his prostate cancer and emergency hospitalization a secret from the public and the president. We did not handle this right, and I did not handle this right. I should have told the president about my cancer diagnosis. I should have also told my team and the American public. And I take full responsibility. I apologize to my teammates and to the American people. Taking questions from reporters for the first time since he returned to work, Austin tried to explain why he kept quiet about his diagnosis. I was being treated for prostate cancer. The news shook me. And I know that it shakes so many others, especially in the black community. It was a gut punch. And frankly, my first instinct was to keep it private. The defense secretary says he never told his staff to hide his hospitalization from the White House, but reporters grilled him about a 911 call for an ambulance after complications from surgery, including a bladder infection and severe pain, sent him back to the hospital. A staffer asking first responders to be discreet. Can I ask, but can the ambulance not show up with lights and sirens? Um, we're trying to mm-hmm. remain a, a little subtle. I asked... Uh my assistant to call the ambulance. I did not direct him uh, to do anything further than just call the ambulance. Austin says he's learned from his mistakes and he's apologized to the president. And he has responded with a grace and warm heart that anyone who knows President Biden would expect. And I'm grateful for his full confidence in me. While Secretary Austin tried to clear the air, questions remain, especially about why no one informed the president when the defense secretary was rushed into intensive care. Several formal inquiries have already been announced at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill. Our thanks to Terry Moran. 
Secretary Austin is back on the job, with the war between Israel and Hamas still very tenuous, and concerns over whether the conflict could spread to other parts of the Middle East escalated this week. The U.S. is preparing to retaliate for the attack on a military base by an Iranian-backed militant group that killed three U.S. service members. At the time we recorded this show, that retaliation had not yet started. But in Gaza, there's continuing desperation for civilians and intense warfare for Israeli forces. Allegations of war crimes against the Israeli Defense Forces have prompted an international court to investigate. ABC's Matt Gutman spent some time with IDF troops in underground tunnels that soldiers say are being used by Hamas to put innocent lives in harm's way. To drive into Gaza is to enter another planet, a landscape of ruins the mind struggles to comprehend. The destruction and more than 26,000 deaths, according to Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry, have opened Israel up to allegations of war crimes, including the trial at the International Court of Justice for genocide. The IDF, which reviewed our footage for operational security, taking ABC into the embattled city of Han Yunus, we climbed down from the armored vehicle. The soldiers are tense. Brigadier General Dan Goldfuss briefs us. Our enemy has dug himself underground very much. We have... Uh tens of miles or tens of kilometers, hundreds of kilometers of under, under the ground that are dug up by the Hamas in every area we go, in every neighborhood that we are, especially in places like uh, schools, kindergartens, hospitals. This is the fourth series of tunnels that I've been in so far, and each of them is a little bit different. The construction is a little different, but typically concrete above below, um, cables and wires on the sides. Each of them inside is hot and damp. Just the week before, we were shown another tunnel in Han Yunus, 60 feet down, multiple flights of stairs. There's bedding on the floor, diapers, and tubes for RPG warheads. But then deeper in, it opens to a fortified bunker. Troops have found dozens of tunnels and bunkers like this one, but nearly four months into this war, and the IDF has not managed to reach Hamas's leaders or its hostages. But in its hunt for the tunnels and Hamas leaders inside, the IDF has displaced nearly two million Palestinians, most of them forced into the area around Han Yunis. With Israeli tanks patrolling last week, this man, Ramzi Abu Zahloul, told our partner network ITV that he was trying to get to his family on the other side, holding a white flag. Moments later, cameras capturing that gunfire, Abu Zahloul falls He's been killed. Yeah, that's We're investigating that. Incident. A man holding a white flag. Yes, I'm, I'm unarmed in, shot dead. I'm investigating. Those that. are your troops. Yes, yes. Those are my troops, and I'm investigating that incident. That is not the way we carry out our uh, rules of engagement. No, we don't fire at uh, people waving white flags. We don't fire at civilians. But you do sometimes. We don't. There are mistakes. It is war. It is war. This is not a machine working and these are people. Goldfuss says that for his troops, every day starts with the rules of engagement, rules which critics say Israel has violated. And so when you see, as the other day, that the ICJ is asking Israel to prevent acts of genocide, how does that sit with you? I urge them to come and see and understand what genocide is and to see that there is no genocide over here. And what I'm doing here is defending my state and my civilians to my orders. We leave the tunnels emerging into the mud. Outside, the destruction and gun battles all around. 
ABC's Matt Gutman with Israeli forces in Gaza. Coming up, Meta's Mark Zuckerberg put on the spot in a congressional hearing, urged to apologize for what lawmakers say is the harm his social media platforms have done. On Perspective, after this. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Perspective from ABC News. I'm Derek Dennis. Outrage, calls for action, and a consensus with lawmakers from both sides of the aisle at a congressional hearing on the dangers of social media. The Senate Judiciary Committee heard from the CEOs of five tech companies on what's being done to prevent children from being exploited online. In the gallery, family members and loved ones of kids who were harmed by online predators. Some of those loved ones even had children die by suicide. Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri demanding that Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg apologize to those families. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? And in response, Zuckerberg turned around and not only apologized, but said this. To, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. ABC's Kira Phillips talked to Sam Chapman, whose son died after buying a fentanyl pill on Snapchat. After the hearing, he said Zuckerberg's apology was half-hearted. Sam, let me, let me just start with, were you in the room that moment that Mark Zuckerberg was pressured to stand up, turn around, and face all of you as you held up pictures, like you're doing right now, of your children? Uh, when he apologized. Did you look him in the eyes? Tell me what that moment was like. Well, I felt like it was a half-hearted apology and I could hear his lawyers keel over in the back of the room. Um, and he didn't really apologize directly. It was sort of around the corner. Um, but what do you expect? You know, so many children are dying on their platforms and they don't fix it. They're obviously heartless profiteers. Tell us about your son. Did he have his own phone? How did he learn about Snapchat? Give us a little background here. So Sammy uh, was 16 and he's a football player and he was ready to be the world's first trillionaire. We caught him uh, mining Bitcoin in the closet. So he was <laughs> a technology native and we are not. And so we did not know that Snapchat was dangerous. We did not know what fentanyl was or that it was slipping into our drug supply. And when this happened, it was the parents' worst nightmare. We found him dead on the floor and I tried to resuscitate him. 
And, you know, years of post-traumatic stress from that one event has is, is followed me. I'm feeling much better three years out and able to do this work to try and make change so that other parents don't have to go through what we've gone through. Final question before we go, Sam. Sammy's Law, I know it's moving forward. What's next? Where do things stand? Well, so far we have bipartisan support, two sponsors on the right, two sponsors on the left, and 13 co-sponsors in the middle, and we've only been at it two months. So we're working on the House of Representatives. I'm going over to the Senate tomorrow to try and meet some senators and get some support, and we're going to keep plugging away until third-party safety software is on all of the platforms that those CEOs represent today. ABC's Kira Phillips talking to Sam Chapman. It sounds like something out of a science fiction movie, the ability to perform certain tasks just by thinking it. One company owned by Elon Musk has claimed to be at the forefront of this work, Neuralink, hoping that their breakthrough could help those who have physical disabilities. And it's prompted renewed conversations in the medical community about how this could all work. ABC's Will Reeve has been following the story he has a personal connection to it and tells Brad Milkey of our ABC News Daily podcast, Start Here, why it's important. Well, I feel like this has been an idea forever, a machine that kind of like reads your thoughts, translates that into action. What is this device and, and, and what is it supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, Brad, thank you for having me. It's kind of like basement science fiction. Oh, why don't they just do that? Why don't they put something in somebody's brain and it could control a computer that would help you do things. But it turns out that we may have the technology to do that. And now Neuralink, one of Musk's many companies, has announced that this one patient that they've done a clinical trial on is responding well to the trial. And what happened in this trial is a device was implanted in the patient's brain. And then these Electrodes, they're tiny, not even wider than a human hair. Thousands of them are also implanted in the patient's body and essentially dumbed down a bit. When they're turned on, they can connect to another device, whether it's a computer, a smartphone, or whatever you can imagine. And that gives the patient the ability to use their thoughts to control an external technology and thus interface with the world around them. The device is designed to interpret your neural activity so you can operate a computer or a smartphone by simply thinking about moving. No wires or physical movement are required. So if it's a patient with a spinal cord injury who has no movement of their limbs, they might be able to use a device like this to control a computer that could control a robotic hand or help them drive. Or if it's someone who can't communicate at the speed of everyone else around them. They could use the computer to help them talk better. The possibilities really are endless, and we're still very early stages, Brad. I have to emphasize that. But the basics are something gets implanted in a patient's brain, the electrodes are turned on, and anything could happen from there. How big of a game changer would that be? It would be... Massive. The word that keeps coming to mind for me is freedom, because the first thing that is robbed of someone living with paralysis or ALS or who has a severe stroke or Parkinson's or on down the list of these debilitating conditions, they lose their freedom to varying degrees. No, this Neuralink and other devices like it, because, by the way, Neuralink isn't the first company to do this specific thing. It's They're one of a small handful, but the Elon Musk of it all makes it the biggest news. 
Well, and and Will, I, I don't know if people know this about you, but like your father, your Will Reeve, your father was Christopher Reeve, the late actor. <laughs> so you ha- you have a personal connection to paralysis. I'm just wondering, sort of, how families of folks who have experienced this might be feeling about this sort of technology potentially coming online. Well, it's it's a complicated thing, Brad. Yes, my dad was Christopher Reeve. He was paralyzed in 1995 and spent the final nine years of his life unable to really do anything physically on his own. He needed a ventilator to breathe. He couldn't move his body from really the chin down. And of course, that was quite difficult for him, for our family, for the many, many people who loved him. I'm overwhelmed by people supporting me. And if I can help people understand this can happen to anybody, that's worth it right there, not to mention my family. At the time, he became the face of paralysis due to his celebrity status, his role as Superman, and the sick irony of the fact that he was then in a wheelchair. But the focus then, and this is the mid to late 90s, early 2000s, the focus was on more physical science, especially and specifically stem cell research and the power to harness embryonic stem cells that would regenerate and essentially rebuild uh, at the spot of the injury and hopefully get someone to regain their functions in one way or another or theoretically get out of a wheelchair. That science is still important and people still study it and people still fund it. But what we're seeing now in the present day is the power of technology. And it's not just Neuralink or companies like it. It's dozens of companies in many different areas relating not only to spinal cord injury, but to ALS, Parkinson's, and so much more, realizing that using technology in a safe and responsible way, because again, we are talking about something, a foreign device implanted into a patient's brain. Let's not minimize that. And we are talking about artificial intelligence, which we don't know the power of yet. Right. As long as the researchers, the scientists, the doctors, the entire community that's focused on finding cures for paralysis are doing so responsibly, the hope is infinite. You're providing hope in a tangible way that may not have existed at a large scale prior to these technological advancements. Wow. Yeah. Which I guess then leads to the question, Will, when could we see this become a reality for more people, like, right, whether it's Neuralink or one of these other pieces of technology, just because something has been successfully implanted in somebody's brain doesn't mean that it's doing all the stuff Elon Musk says it will do, right? So, I mean, do we have a sense of how quickly this could advance? Well, there's still more that we need to learn about the specific patient that Musk announced is doing well after this first human trial for Neuralink. We don't know how old the patient is. We don't know what their condition is, whether they have ALS, whether they have a spinal cord injury. So we need to learn that, and then we need more patients in this clinical trial and others like it to have similar positive results so that researchers can build a data set to see what works, what doesn't, what can be improved, what needs to be avoided, et cetera. The real proof in the pudding is going to come from where are we at six months, 12 months, 24 months. (laughs) If the device continues to function well on that time frame, now the landscape has changed. We need to gather a lot more information about the patient and about what the device does to any patient before it will be even close to mass marketability or mass consumption. But we're closer to that now than we were even just a couple days ago. All right. ABC's Will Reeve. Great reporting and really helpful insight. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Brad. Always a pleasure. ABC's Will Reeve talking to Start Here host Brad Milkey. Coming up neighborhood mediators, good Samaritans, 
violence interrupters, brokering peace on the streets, how they're doing it without guns of their own or the help of law enforcement. On Perspective, after this. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. From ABC News, this is Perspective. I'm Derek Dennis. Coming up, stopping the violence without police. We're on the streets with so-called violence interrupters. But first... Former President Trump handed a whopping $83 million judgment for defaming writer E. Jean Carroll. She had accused him of sexually assaulting her in a department store dressing room in New York City in the 1990s and initially won a $5 million judgment against him for sexual battery and defamation last year. But then Carol and her attorneys sued once more, claiming Trump defamed her by making disparaging statements like this. The only difference between me and other people is I'm honest. She's not my type. A Manhattan jury found Trump's own words were damaging and awarded E. Jean Carroll an even larger money judgment. ABC's George Stephanopoulos sat down with Carol and her attorney, Roberta Kaplan, days after winning that $83 million jury award. It's been reported the exchange smiles with the jurors on the way out. Is that true? Yes. What was that like? Well, it was very moving. It made me burst into tears because they met my eyes for the first time. It was very moving. You said you want to do great things with this $83 million settlement. Give us an idea about that. Don't want to waste money. Well, I do have an idea. I like to, it's, I like to give the money to something Donald Trump hates. If it will cause him pain for me to give money to a certain to certain things, that's my intent. Well, perhaps a fund for the women who have been sexually assaulted by Donald Trump. How long can he delay this? So the initial question is, over the next two weeks, is whether he can put up a bond for the $83 million. Somebody would be taking a lot of risk to do that, right? That's for sure. Last time, on only the $5 million, he didn't get a bond. He deposited with the court. So he either has a choice to get a bond or deposit $83-plus million with the court. If you can't do that, then we can start collecting right away. What was it like being in the courtroom with Donald Trump? Well, uh, terrifying uh, until I got there. Uh, the weeks leading up to it, no sleep, you know, couldn't eat, uh, couldn't do it. And then I sat down. Robbie said, good morning, Miss Carroll. Can you please spell your name for the court? I spelled my name. I looked out. There he was. And it was like he was like nothing, like an emperor without clothes. 
So you're delivering your closing statement and the former president storms out of the courtroom. I was wondering about your reaction right then. Did you think right then you'd won the case? I definitely thought we got a few more million dollars immediately. I was like, well, that's worth about $10 million. <laughs> um, I didn't see him do it because I was facing the jury and he was on my, to my left, I was facing my right. But the idea in a case where our basic thesis is that he's a bully who can't follow the rules, to act like a bully who doesn't follow the rules is, is an interesting strategy, let me put it that way. Thank you for coming in this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Across America, on inner city streets, inside tough housing projects, and in the crossfire of gang turfs, beefs too often end in murder. And those murders can go unsolved by police, leaving families grieving and neighborhoods deemed unsafe. But unarmed Good Samaritans, known as violence interrupters, are working hard to save lives and turn the statistics around and they're doing it with government support. ABC's Byron Pitts went to his hometown of Baltimore straight to the people who know the work of violence interrupters firsthand. For Peely Houston, a date she dreaded for three years. I'm sorry I didn't have the courage to this day to come here. I thought I had enough time with my brother. Dante Barksdale was a big brother to much of Baltimore, technically called a violence interrupter shows up in urban battlefields when few others can or will. No Kevlar, no weapon, just his reputation and his word. He had to get in the middle of conflicts and beefs, you know. He may have stepped right into the conflict at the point of time when they were deciding to shoot someone. We can talk it out! In the hit HBO series The Wire, the name Barksdale sparked fear. A drug kingpin inspired by the real-life Nathan Bodie Barksdale, Dante's uncle. Dante dabbled in the family business, a convicted drug dealer who returned home a changed man. He helped found Safe Streets, a grassroots organization aimed at keeping teenagers off drugs and out of jail. It brought out the very best in him. He was very inventive with his outreach. I challenge you guys to be. Is unique. So Safe Street became his ministry of sorts. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It was church on a shoestring. Baltimore police and the mayor's office recognized Safe Street's value to mediate conflicts where a badge or a politician dare not venture. But with data not widely available on how well this approach works, many governments didn't want to back it. But then fate would raise its profile. I just lost my mom, man. The murder of George Floyd. The protests that followed. Suddenly, programs like Baltimore Safe Streets were welcomed and funded across the country. Chicago, the city that pioneered this work, investing at least $50 million since 2021. New York City putting in $86 million. And now cities large and small tapping into President Biden's American Rescue Plan. Wichita, Kansas, investing $1.27 million. Community violence intervention is about using tested messages, community leaders, community members to directly work with people who are the most likely to commit gun crimes. Congress put up $250 million to the DOJ in 2022 through the bipartisan Safer Communities Act. And it works. Dante Barksdale was 46 years old when he was murdered, shot and killed three years ago. Six shots to his head, two to the torso. And it was someone in the course of his Safe Street work that someone he tried to help at some point? Yes. 
safe streets was there for the people that didn't want to come to the police, that were afraid to because they were afraid for their well-being. Dante's beloved safe streets didn't simply have street cred. It had significant statistical success. A 2023 report by Johns Hopkins found safe streets reduced homicides and non-fatal shootings by an average of 23%. Dante did it unarmed, no vest, no security. Those moments so tense that even pulling out a cell phone to record could break the fragile peace. Barksdale was the first of three safe street violence interrupters murdered in one year. Tater was my friend. He was my brother. I remember going to his funeral. And I was like in a daze because I couldn't believe that he was snatched from us. Kay Bain is New York City's Dante Barksdale. Same passion, similar backstory. Ever been shot at? Yeah. Ever shoot at anybody? Absolutely. This is what community looks like. This is what community looks like. He does CVI work in New York City in the largest housing project in America, Queensbridge. He's the founder and executive director of Community Capacity Development, or CCD. Most of the time, our phone rings and people say, I'm about to go kill somebody. That's a cry for help. Really? People have called? People don't stop calling us. The Queensbridge Houses has a long history of violence. That all changed when CCD arrived. In 2017, an astonishing 365 days straight, not a single shooting. Here, the goats don't have rings. They have records. You're in prison for uh, 44 years. Yes, I was in prison for manslaughter, murder. How long have you been home? Uh, I've been home now, going on seven years. Why do this? I never want to see another teenager go to prison. I never want to see them kill a human, and I never want to see them get punished and go to prison. They have no idea of what's waiting for them. Our thanks to Byron Pitts. Coming up, remembering Cheetah Rivera, the iconic Latina actress, singer, and dancer who passed away this week. What friends and fans are saying about her life and legacy. On Perspective, after this. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Perspective from ABC News. I'm Derek Dennis. In a matter of days, Super Bowl 58 will see a repeat matchup. The San Francisco 49ers. We've been going to the games for 52 years, so we just stay no matter what. Playing against the Kansas City Chiefs. One more year, we're running it back, and I can't wait to see us bring home another championship win. Both franchises are the team to beat, respectively. Diehard Super Bowl fans are used to shelling out big bucks to be on hand in person, no matter who's playing year after year. ABC's Lindsey Davis has a preview of the big game, 
by the numbers. The Chiefs have three Super Bowl wins under their belt. Two of those wins came the last few years, 2020 and 2023. That makes them the reigning champions. The 49ers have won five Super Bowls, but they lost their most recent Super Bowl in 2020 against the Chiefs. For the first time, the game is being held in Las Vegas. And speaking of Vegas, sportsbooks currently have the 49ers as a favorite by as many as two points. American and United Airlines have added 13 flights between Kansas City and Las Vegas. Vegas for game weekend. Special flight numbers include 1989, Swift's birth year and album name, and 87, Kelsey's jersey number. And we have one more stat for you, and it's a big one, 6059 That, my friends, is the starting price for game tickets online. Ah, uh, but there's a big question mark surrounding one anticipated Super Bowl attendee, ABC's David Muir on the star power on and off the field. San Francisco 49ers and the reigning champs, the Kansas City Chiefs. The two quarterbacks facing off against each other, Patrick Mahomes for the Chiefs, his fourth Super Bowl in six years. The 49ers, Brock Purdy, the very last pick of the 2022 NFL Draft. Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift with Chiefs star tight end Travis Kelsey. She has yet to confirm if she'll be at the Super Bowl. It turns out she's performing in Tokyo the night before the Super Bowl. But tonight, fans have already calculated her travel time and have determined she could easily make it to Vegas before kickoff. They say any jet lag, she could shake it off. See what he did there? ABC's David Muir. Usher will be the halftime performer. And yes, Vegas will be the backdrop. Super Bowl Sunday, just days away. Kicking off Black History Month, a celebration 100 years in the making. The nation's oldest black collegiate newspaper is marking its centennial. The Hilltop newspaper on the campus of the historically black Howard University in Washington, D.C. This major milestone is being recognized with a weekend of commemorative events, a fireside chat, a black tie gala, a church service, and alumni brunch, bringing past and present Hilltoppers together. The newspaper's alumni stretch far and wide, including Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson, who will deliver a keynote address, Washington Post reporter Keith Alexander, Ta-Nehisi Coates, a writer whose novel The Water Dancer was an Oprah book club pick, and yours truly, an ABC News correspondent and anchor, just to name a few. This week, I talked to the newspaper's current editor-in-chief, Jasper Smith, a senior journalism major from Phoenix, Arizona, about the Hilltop's legacy on campus and beyond. Yes, I mean, it is a big legacy, you know, as a collegiate publication that's been publishing for 100 years, just understanding what our founders wanted 100 years ago. Um, the very first edition of the Hilltop, you know, we covered registration foley's and being able to provide a voice for Howard's students. And that's something that we've been able to do for a century now. And so I think it's so important um, as we celebrate the centennial to understand our mission. Um, and that is to provide a voice for Howard University students. It's to cover our community and it's to be a watchdog, which is the whole point of the black press. And so it's just it's such an honor that we're able to see 100 years as a publication. You know, that's a really big accomplishment, and that's not something that every publication can say that they've been able to accomplish. So rattle off some of the, the big names that have graced the pages of the Hilltop as alumni. So there's Zora Neale Hurston. She is a Harlem Renaissance extraordinaire and an author. 
uh, Louis Eugene King, he was the co-founder with Zorno Hurston. Um, and then we have an extensive alumni pool. Um, our keynote speaker for Saturday's event is Isabel Wilkerson. She was the first black woman to win a Pulitzer Prize in journalism. And she was the editor in chief of the Hilltop in 1981 to 1982. Um, our current advisor, Keith Alexander, who is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who works at the Washington Post. Um, and we have alumni everywhere. Um, it seems like, you know, as I get closer to the event and people start reaching out, it's so fun to see, you know, where everyone has ended up uh, from where they started at the Hilltop. So much of the Hilltop's history is Black history, right? Absolutely. The Hilltop definitely chronicles Black history. Um, that's part of being in the Black press. You know, we cover the stories that, you know, mainstream media may not always want to. And it's even more niche when you're talking about a collegiate publication. Um, before 100 years, you know, where Black history was present, so was the Hilltop. Um, you know, we were there covering when Howard inducted its first uh, Black president, Mordecai Wyatt Johnson. And, you know, that was two years after the Hilltop had been founded. Going on to more modern day, you know, the Hilltop was was there when, you know, President Barack Obama was elected. And so for the span of 100 years, you know, we've been very intentional about being a voice for our community. And that's not just college students, but that's the Black community. That's the D.C. community being able to tell those stories that matter. That's something that we're still doing today. And that's, you know, as editor in chief, I'm very intentional about finding those stories, whether it's profiles or, you know, longer form investigative pieces. How can we contribute to Black history? Just understanding that for over 100 years, you know, so many Howard University students have invested their time, so much time into this publication, whether that's sacrificing, you know, going out or finding friends or, you know, just participating in the Howard social life to be able to contribute to the publication and to write these much needed articles. Um, so it's a really big legacy that we're taking on. And I'm just so excited for the Hilltop and what we'll be able to do in the next 100 years. And for many of the graduates of the historically black institution, the Hilltop is where their journalism careers were born. To learn more about the Hilltop at Howard University, you can go to thehilltoponline.com. Before we go, we lost a legend this week, acclaimed actress, singer, and dancer, Cheetah Rivera, a Tony Award winner, best known for her decades-long Broadway career, including her starring role as Anita in the 1957 original production of West Side Story, Rose in Bye Bye Birdie, Aurora in Kiss of the Spider Woman, and Velma Kelly in Chicago, where she famously sang All That Jazz. Come on, babe, why don't we pay the tax? But Rivera's biggest role was that of a trailblazing Latina, unapologetic, unforgettable, unwavering in representing her culture, all while being a tireless performer. You have to be willing to do the work, mm -hmm. hard work, hard. relentless work, and you have to be ready. Rivera in an appearance on The View. A producer once described her as everything Broadway was meant to be, spontaneous, compelling, and talented as hell. Former co-star Dick Van Dyke agreed. She was the most powerful human being ever to step on a stage. I've never known anybody like her. In 2009, Rivera received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from then-President Barack Obama and was revered by actress and choreographer Debbie Allen, who followed Rivera's entire career. 
And if you never experienced her live, I, I, I feel sorry for you because you missed that lightning and thunderstorm, honey, that tore it up every time. Cheetah Rivera died in New York after a brief illness at the age of 91. Her legions of fans will remember her forever. From ABC News, this has been Perspective. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by Aaron Ferrer, Marwa Muwaki, and Joy Piazza. If you want to listen to any of our past shows, subscribe to the Perspective podcast. Give us a review. If you've got the time, tell us what you'd like to hear in the future and what you think. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find Perspective and other ABC News shows at abcaudio.com slash podcast. For ABC News, I'm Derek Dennis. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.